What's your grump? All this and more coming up in This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Basement blockbuster buster. Computer space replica. And Sony PlayStation in stereo. All this and more coming up on this week's show. Up to date news for out of date tech. Hello, how are you people? Welcome on to the show. Tony, also known as Oz Retro Comp, and um, you've been on before, but it was a long time ago, and since then, what have you done? What's the big thing you've done, Tony? Tell everybody about it. G'day, Dave. G'day, Chris. I've been up to a few things, not as much in terms of making of videos, the various reasons, mm-hmm. but since we last spoke, I've started a podcast, just like everybody else has started a podcast. <laughs> it is a thing to do at the moment, isn't it? <laughs> You're a competition, are you? Well, I wouldn't say that, but uh, we have certainly been inspired by you guys because we love what This Week in Retro has been doing for ages now, as well as some other podcasts such as, I guess, really the Retro Hour is probably the most obvious one that we've been influenced by because the format we have in ours is that we we talk a lot of stuff for the first part of it, Craig and I. Craig's the other guy that uh, I do the podcast with. And uh, the second part of it is where we talk with a usually somebody from Australia about their experiences mm-hmm. from back in the day, why they do what they do, also keen to talk to people who were involved in the industry back in the day. And in fact, we've got a, a gentleman coming up in a future episode who used to run a bulletin board back in the uh, 80s and the 90s. So we want to, want to start getting cool. more of those sorts of stories to try and capture as much of this oral history as possible before it all disappears. So we're certainly keen to talk to a lot more people. We're focusing mainly on Aussies at this stage because we're Australian and a lot of mm. there's a lot of stuff that's happened here in Australia over the years and is still happening now that doesn't really get heard about much uh, overseas and, and not just for our own benefit here in Australia but also for the benefit of people from yeah. outside of Australia that might be keen to find out, hey, how does stuff work down here? There's definitely a lot of that happens in in retro, particularly in the mainstream media, they tend to not want to tell you two or three concurrent stories. They'll just tell you about the Nintendo. So they'll, yeah. they'll talk about one thing and miss out everything else. So it's good that you're doing that kind of thing. Um, I've listened to a few episodes. I quite enjoy it. Oh, um, I hope you keep it up. Um, Chris, how are you this week? What have you been up to? Actually, before we do that, what's the name of your podcast, Tony? Did we cover that? I don't think we did. Oh, yes. Go on, plug yourself. Plug it. Okay, it's called Grumpy Oz Retro, and I'll keep it brief. There was a fun backstory behind this. Uh, Craig, I'm not going to explain the story as to how Craig and I met, but on our first meeting, we were talking about this sort of stuff. I spoke about my YouTube-y sort of things, and he wants to start his own YouTube channel, and he already marked out the name, and the name was Grumpy Retro Bastard. So when I mentioned the podcast to him, I thought, we kind of hit upon the idea of, okay, he can bring his grumpiness and I can bring my Oz retro-ness. And we ended up with grumpy Oz retro and it's just gone on from here. And if, in case you've missed it, the latest episode of grumpy Oz retro is fantastic because we happen to have a guest, our first international guest, in fact, a gentleman by the name of Chris, you may have heard of. Sounds very like well a known for Australian. Perth Amiga users group. And Perth <laughs> Amiga users group does very good work. And he also has a couple other bits and pieces he, he does, which we talk about as well. 
Sounds like a totally fake yeah. Australian. And you guys swear, don't you? We're not allowed to f- swear on here, so we won't do that. <laughs> so uh, moving on, I had a great weekend, actually. I went along to a thing that I've been wanting to get along to for ages called the um, Nexus Toy Fair. And the good thing about going there was it. Uh, there were lots of, lots of things there to look at, but I wasn't tempted to go down the rabbit hole of toy collecting or comic book collecting, which was also there and stuff mm. like that. But it was still just good to just see another part of the whole nostalgia and retro niche being played out and all it is is you know it's a whole two dollar coin entry at the moment and then it's just stalls where you can buy stuff but all i came away with was things like dvds of 80s tv shows a book and a couple of computer games so it's sort of stuff i'd have bought at a retro shop anyway but it was still still cool to get along to and whilst there actually while i think about it um i got spotted for the first time guys celebrity (laughs) oh somebody said chris and i looked at him i said oh hi and they said, you don't know me, but I've seen you on your channel. So I don't know if they're talking about <laughs> this channel or my own channel, but either way, hi, Ben. Thanks for shouting out and saying hello. Um, I probably looked a bit zoned out because that's the first time that's happened to me knowingly. Um, so <laughs> I didn't really know what to say. So sorry if I came across as a bit of an idiot. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, no, it was, it was good fun. And, yeah, Nexus Toy Fair, if you're into toy collecting and stuff, check that out. All right, shall we move on? Yeah, I should say that there's no Neil this week. If uh, careful people will have spotted that he's not here, uh, oh, yeah. Neil is uh, Neil's got some um, something that he's doing uh, not related to to retro and so on that he can't make it for for this Monday and actually a couple of Mondays coming up, um, so he won't be here this week. But we have got guests where he's not here. That's why Tony's on. Anyway, shall we go on with it, Chris? Um, all right, Sam. Grumpy Oz Retro, that's a good good title, actually, you've come up with there. Because my first question to you guys today as part of our first story is, when's the first time you felt old, guys? Um, Dave? I think it's at Tea in the Park, which is a music festival in Scotland. Um, it's uh, It was along the same lines as Glastonbury, um, and maybe about 15 years ago, I noticed myself seeing they're letting too many people in, people aren't moving about. And then I thought, hang on, maybe Dave, maybe it's you, maybe it's not everyone else, maybe you're just getting a little bit old for that. So I would have been in my mid-thirties at that point, and I would have been grumbling about a sore back and sleeping on a sleeping in a tent and um, having but my third day of, of being absolutely bladdered in a row and being grumpy about it. So that's when I noticed I was getting old. What about you, Tony? Oh, God. I remember the first time was probably about 10 years ago, but it's a really tedious anecdote. So I'm going to leave that, but I'll mention the most recent time I felt uh, very old. Uh, My spawn, he's 16. So he's just started learning how to drive. And a couple of weeks ago, I took him out for his first lesson in his mum's car. And when I got into the passenger seat next to him, it it clicked. It just occurred to me that this car is actually older than he is. Um, she bought it brand new in 2004. And in fact, it's the same car that we brought him home from the hospital in. So wow. when I realized that, it's like, oh, wow, I, wow, I am, I am old, especially when the boy is sitting next to me and uh, driving. That is just pretty, pretty full on. Um, what about you, Chris? Uh, for me, funny enough, thinking about this, I was probably about mid 30s, maybe sliding towards 40s. But I do remember it clearly because I was in a blockbuster um, up in the northern suburbs of, of Perth. Um, and I asked if they had Cannibal Run, 
which you know my in my mind you know came out a couple of years ago right <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and and the and the, the 12 year old working behind the counter he was probably much older but to me he looked 12 um he said he'd never heard of it and and he went to check on the computer and then i i, I sort of explained what it was and what it was about and when it came out and he just goes wow that sounds old and and what he what he didn't realize was he was saying to me wow you're old yeah. <laughs> you know? It's, it's crazy. That's definitely when age started to hit me. Um, of course, these days we don't need to be insulted at a blockbuster to watch a movie. But also in these days, uh, you know, of too many streaming services to count, I think you can spend more time trying to choose a movie to watch for the evening than you actually spend watching the movie. But actually, let's flip that back for a moment because to be fair... It's not that much different to how it was on a video store, if we're honest. Um, I can certainly remember clearly going down to Blockbusters or Video Easy or even like the local corner shop, which had um, sort of jumped on the bandwagon of, of the rental trend in the 80s. And you could spend hours trying to choose a movie um, going up and down the shelves. Did you not think it's enjoyable back in the day doing that? looking through the shelves, whereas now when you sit down and watch a film and you're just trying to scroll through what's there, it's not it's not a pleasant experience the same way. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the difference. You know, it, it was actually part of the fun. It was part of the experience. Um, you know, the adventure of browsing shelf after shelf and picking up the physical media, looking at all the boxes, because what you'd do is you'd arm yourself, not necessarily for what you're going to watch that evening, but you'd then be aware of all the other movies that you might watch on a future day. I've just knocked a camera off the table. Ignore the bumping sounds. Um, but, yeah, you would. You'd just go up and down, you know, looking at everything that was there. Um, and it could it could take a long time, especially if you're with a bunch of mates and you can't agree on what you're going to watch. Did you guys ever do that? Just sort of. Can't decide, and then if you do decide what movie you're going to watch, you then can't decide what popcorn you're going to buy and all of that. But it was the difference was that was part of the event, you know, that was part of the evening, so it didn't feel like you're kind of missing out. It's not quite the same, I don't think, scrolling through selections presented to you by an algorithm that now thinks you're obsessed with ghost chasers because you watched one episode while you mm. were drunk, you know. Mm. Um, but, well, there's a really nice guy in the States called Anthony, funnily enough, uh, but most people will know him as Mondo Video. He's put up a video uh, tour in his channel of his basement, and what he's done is he's lovingly converted his basement into what he refers to as a mum-and-pop video store and i think we touched on this in brief in dave's briefs last week um but i just wanted to go back and, and cover this story in full this week um it's of course his way of displaying his extensive collection of original vhs movies but i'll tell you what what a display so the tour begins at ground level in his house and he, he goes to a, sh a bookshelf and he flicks a secret switch and i'm a sucker for secret rooms i one day yeah. must have a secret room right Flicks a switch, secret switch on the bookshelf, opens the door, which takes you down to the basement. And from the very moment of looking down the stairs, you can tell this is the, an entrance to a recreation video store. The four, first room has got the counter um, and a really good-sized recreation video shop, uh, really nicely appointed and laid out, nice checkerboard floor, um, shelves everywhere. And, in fact, that would be plenty for most people. And then he points out he's got a bit of a cheeky adult section so we go through the sort of saloon doors into the adult section doesn't give you too much detail of what's in there but it shows you that there's a door in there that takes you through to another room and that room has got a selection of workout videos um from the 80s and 90s or mostly the 80s i think and that's where his gym equipment is 
Um, so every single part of this shop is sort of further sub-themed. Uh, then there's a, there's a horror room that he goes into So for, for his horror movie selection. And then there's another secret switch on another set of shelves. So it's literally a shelves of videos this time, and he flicks one of the videos at the end. It opens another room, and he's got a kitchenette in there and even more video categories to browse through. It's absolutely amazing. Um, and it's a short video. It's less than three minutes. Um, I could seriously spend three weeks in that basement and not feel I've wasted my time. So, uh, guys, it's a topic we've not really touched on on this show. Nostalgia for movies. And I think we can also throw in there for physical medium as well. Do you collect them? Did you ever give them up? Um, and I'll include DVDs in this as well, not just VHSs. So we rented movies from a place called Azad Video. And in my memory, it was a massive, massive warehouse-type place with videos everywhere. And it can't have been that massive because the, the, the building that it was in is still there. It's split up into a couple of shops now. But it's still big. It was still huge. Uh, and we'd go down there on a Saturday um, and we'd browse through and pick maybe two or three videos to get. Um, it wasn't too expensive to rent them out. We'd pick maybe two or three, especially if you didn't go for the new releases, two or three videos for the weekend. I, I loved that. I loved just browsing through them, ho hoping to find something, some kind of amazing video that, 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 that you didn't know existed. Um, I've never collected them. Uh, and unlike games or vinyl records or CDs, I don't personally have the same appeal collecting videotapes or DVDs. I, I still watch. I mean, I watch loads of films. I go to the cinema most weeks. Some weeks I'll go. Some weeks I'll go twice. I mean, on average, I probably go once a week. So I see fifty films a year in the cinema. Um, but the purpose of the, the the VHS or the DVD case was to help choose the film. I look forward to it. So I think I'd need to have many hundreds of films in cases to get to that point. Otherwise, I mean, if you've got if you've got 15 or 20, you're not going to say which film will I watch tonight and look through the same 15 or 20. I'd need to have hundreds or maybe even over a thousand um, stored somewhere. I don't have the room for it. I don't want to spend the money. But if I was rich, if I had the money, I'd love to have that. I mean, what he's got is great. I don't know if I'd need it that that. Um, detail, but I'd love to be able to have something to browse through to, to find a film to watch. And as we mentioned earlier on, it beats browsing through Plex or Netflix or whatever or iPlayer looking for a looking for a film that way. It's not quite as nice as just physically touching them and bringing them out and looking at them. So yeah, um, while I don't have, I don't collect them. I, I do. See, I see that. I see a bit of the appeal, but I think it needs to be. You need to get to that tipping point where you've got so many that you don't know what you've got, and you're browsing through, and you can find something you don't, you've forgotten is there. Yeah, very similar uh, situation to Dave here when he's talking about the video shop he went to. It reminds me of the very small chain of video shops we had here in Adelaide. Not quite a mom and pop operation, but sort of. It was like an independent chain called Atlantic Video. And the thing is with these particular shops is they were massive. They were the size of a small supermarket. So if you think of how big an Aldi is, it's about that kind of size. And it was just full of D originally full of VHS and video games, but then eventually went into DVDs. And they, they hung around for quite a while because they had a lot of DVD rentals. They even sold DVDs. They had an online store. So they were really they pivoted pretty hard into the DVD era. 
but they too eventually kind of um, started to peter out. In fact, one of the saddest things with them was that uh, one of their, they were down to one store towards the end and what they still had the same store they always had since the 90s but by that stage only a quarter of it was actually being used and the rest of it was all partitioned off and you could see it from the street that it was you know three quarters empty and that was really sad and it just kind of I guess brought home the fact that yeah this is an end of an era but they did they did hang around for quite a while and I do have some great memories of renting games and videos and then later DVDs and stuff um Again, like Dave, I'm not a huge collector as such. Uh, I mean, I bought a fair bit of uh, DVD media, particularly back in the 2000s with stuff like mainly TV series and documentaries and things, and a lot of this stuff you can't get these days. Uh, and um, I think the best thing about physical media is, is whilst it can sometimes appear on the streaming platforms, it can also be removed at a moment's notice and you know, that's obviously a little bit sort of unnerving when, when something like that happens. Uh, but the downside with the physical media isn't necessarily the size of it. Sorry, Dave. Yeah, I was going to say that's a big deal, the idea that, I mean, you can buy content and then maybe one day, 10 years later, you'll get an email saying we're closing down. You've got, you've got, you've got so much time to log in and download it or to do this to transfer it and so on. And we're going to lose everything we buy online, all these, all these digital purposes. I just feel that in, in 15, 20, 25 years' time, we're not going to have them. Um, so, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and that, that is quite sad, and we're already starting to see this happen uh, to an extent, which is why with the physical media I have, I've been – well, it's not just that necessarily. I mean, the physical media too has its own concerns. Uh, DVD rot is a classic one. Like, like, I don't know if you've ever seen DVD rot where, where basically you can tell, like when you look at the bottom of a DVD, it's starting to discolour because the, the surface is starting to delaminate, and once that sets in, then obviously the disc is ruined. So – what I've done with all my DVDs is I've backed them up into digital files in, in a modern file format and saved them to a number of uh, hard drives, uh, flash drives and whatnot. So I've, I've, and I've keep on refreshing those every few years. That said, obviously there's a legality situation which can sort of probably not, probably a bit out of scope for this particular conversation. It's certainly not an endorsement of doing what I actually do with this sort of stuff. Mm. And if you have to drop a disclaimer in here to say that, that's cool. But yeah, <laughs> I think uh, I think it's one of those things where, where yeah, we're already seeing the danger of, of this physical media deteriorating. And yeah. if, if we're not careful, we're going to lose it. And and that does that does concern me um, a lot. Uh, I mean, how, how are you finding all this, Chris? I've not I've not come across DVD rot yet, and I'll come onto my collection in a minute. But um, I've certainly seen it on CDs that I've acquired for for PC games. Funnily enough, where you look at the back and it's just completely delaminated, and you know the first when you try and install it, that is it's you know not reading the data properly. Then you have to look at the under underside and it's like okay, yeah, this, I don't even recognise the back of the disc. Yeah, yeah, mm, yeah. it's no surprise that the machine can't recognise it. Um, but yeah, with regards to the leg- legalities, I mean, obviously, we, we none of us are experts, but obviously, format shifting is usually sort of frowned upon. But I think we can all agree that it's morally acceptable to back up your own collection for your own personal yeah. use. You the, know, the ethic. I'm I'm driven by what what's ethically right rather than yeah. rather than anything else, and hmm. that that's um yeah, that's how yeah. I sleep at night being being ethically right. 
Yeah, that's right. But in terms of movies, I absolutely love movies. Um, I've got an extensive DVD collection. Maybe I'll either throw in a photo for Duncan or maybe a little bit of panning footage. Um, but I've got a massive shelf that's kind of double stacked with DVDs. Not got many VHSs, in all honesty, other than a few collectibles. So I've got the whole James Bond set in um, VHS where it creates a picture along the spines, which is quite nice. Nearly sold them. Yeah, I nearly sold them. We put them in a garage sale a few years back. Nobody was interested. So I still got them. And now I'm actually really pleased I do. Yeah, funny you should mention those sorts of big collections because this is a um, a pretty it's, – it's almost like a meme at this point. Uh, the Simpsons. The Simpsons, back when it was actually good, right up till about mm-hmm. season seven, season eight, they had normal-sized DVD box sets. But by the time they got to season nine, they had this thing that was shaped like Homer's head. And trying oh. to put that on a shelf along nah. with the rest of oh. the DVDs is a bit of a yeah. bit of a pain. So really, I don't know what they were thinking there. I think they were trying to be cool, but it just doesn't work. But oddly enough, it was after about season ten where the Simpsons turned to crap anyway. So it's a, a moot point. Yeah, the, uh, the, something that gives me the real fear is you're collecting these DVD releases or VHS releases, and they're lining up lovely on the shelf. And then season eight comes out, and they've changed the way that they arrange things in the spine. Oh, absolutely! The whole thing's ruined. Mm. Yeah, ruined. Yeah, and then you have to buy a whole other new box set. <laughs> you oh. have to buy the whole collection again, and that's uh. where I mean, obviously that that VHS collection of James Bond it stops at I think it stops at Goldeneye or maybe the one after, because after that, then obviously you know it was yeah. most people were buying DVDs or Blu-rays or whatever. So, yeah, those aren't covered in that collection at all. Um, and I've got a couple of Star Wars trilogy uh, box sets. So the ones, I've got the first widescreen one that they put out before they digitally remastered them. And then I've got mm. the special edition ones in widescreen signed by David Prowse. So I'm quite pleased to have that. But they have, everything else is DVDs and Blu-rays. Um, not crazy about VHS, just that those ones are a little bit special. Um but yeah, I've got tons of them. Uh, I don't sub to any streaming services. I, I'll use them. You know, if somebody gives me their password, <laughs> talking about ethical and legal <laughs> questions, um, uh, you know, I, I'll happily leech off anybody for Netflix or Disney Plus or whatever, but I'm not paying for those because the problem is you have to pay for all of them. And and, and what I'm yeah. very aware of, as, as Tony's touched on there, you know, often you'll see a movie there and you think, oh, this is a good streaming service, so you subscribe to that. And then before you know it, all the decent stuff has, has gone because they've only licensed it for a period, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so so you're up against that. Um, I love the way Netflix, you search for a movie and they've got lots of suggestions for a movie that's nearly the one that you want to watch. It's, it's never the actual one you're looking for. Or they might have, if you want to watch a series of movies, they've got number two and three and four, but they don't have number one. And I can't watch things out of order. It just can't be done. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the other issue is, and we won't touch on this too much because you can get quite political, but I don't like the idea of movies being changed or having warnings put up front and whatever. I just like to enjoy stuff, you know, in the context of the era it was created. And that that's just me. Thought- that's not necessarily a popular view, but, you know, they can't change the DVD on my shelf. They can't touch it. They can't delete a scene. I don't scene. like the they warnings can't. at all. I mean, the, the war- uh. especially if it puts some context on it, but changing yeah. the actual content of it, I don't think you fix anything that way, especially if no. it, especially watching it and suddenly you're like, something's not right here. What, what's, no, exactly. What's yeah, wait, uh, that's not how I remember it. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Um, but, I mean, before I close the story off, actually, we can't talk about movies without asking the ultimate question, best movie ever made, all right? So when I ask you that question, first one that comes to mind, Tony, best movie ever made. 
Oh, God. Um, I'm assuming by best you mean favourite. Would that be a better way of putting it, maybe? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah. However you yeah. want to frame it. Yeah. Oh, God. Um, look, that's the thing. It all depends on my mood. I've got, like, I've got, like, maybe about half a dozen or so movies that could take that mantle at any particular time because these are movies that just had a big impact on my life. But right now, as I sit here, my absolute favourite movie of all time is the Muppet movie. Oh, nice. Ap- apropos of nothing. It, but, but, <laughs> I, mean, I love that movie. I, I still can't work out how the hell they got Kermit to ride that bike with, you know, <laughs> with the effects they had in 1979 or whatever, and he was able to ride that bike seamlessly and no CGI or anything like that. And when I saw that when I was a little kid, that just blew my mind. And even now it blows my mind. I still can't work out how the hell Kermit rode that bike. That's just if I had to narrow it down, my favourite scene from a movie of all time would be Kermit riding that bike with the Rainbow Connection playing. You know, it's just it's a sweet Things scene, that... and uh, Kermit riding that bike is just yeah. I don't know how Jim <laughs> Henson did it. Genius, absolute genius. Things that keep Tony up at night. Dave, what about <laughs> I, um, yourself? Best movie of that, all time? That's not even my favourite Muppet movie. I can't decide between Muppets Treasure Island and, and Muppets Christmas Carol. They're both Ooh. amazing films. I fair love shout. those. I mean, that, that's actually a fair shout. They're both they're both decent, but I'm very much about the OG Muppet movie here. But uh, <laughs> totally, I totally respect you. I mean, the Muppet Christmas Carol is probably the best Christmas movie ever, and I can't stand Christmas movies, yeah. but yeah. I love the Muppet Christmas Carol, so make yeah. that what you will. Like yeah. the lamp, not the rat. Like the lamp, not the rat. No, Um and the question wasn't even about Muppet movies. So, of course, I'm taking straight away to thinking about Lord of the Rings, but I'm going to say not Lord of the Rings because it's based in a book. Yeah. Um, Star Wars, it feels a bit pedestrian saying that, and I think Star Wars is less special now because there's not a drought of Star Wars. There's so much Star Wars content to watch that it makes it you know, a little bit less special. So I'll settle on either Alien or Aliens. I guess it's the first one. The second wasn't a lazy follow-up because the second was was great in lots of ways, but I'd say that Alien is my favourite film. There you go, Alien. Oh, okay. Best movie ever made. You're both wrong, but Dave was so close. Best movie ever, ever made is definitely Aliens. But, oh! But, but, again, I'm the same. It depends on when you ask me. Yeah, best mo- does, best movie it? ever made it is does. Highlander. Best movie ever oh, made is Talladega Nights. <laughs> you know, yeah. It really depends on the mood, but most of the time, Aliens. Aliens is right up there, absolutely. Um, anyway, huge thanks to Bajaco6502 for make us, making us aware of this amazing retro collection, this video store. Um, this kind of nostalgia trip 100, 100% belongs on the show. And a massive thanks to Anthony, a.k.a. Mondo Video, for allowing us to use uh, his overlay footage for the YouTube version of this episode. Links to his original video will be in the show notes as well as his Facebook and other socials where he kindly shares individual pictures of each of the items in his massive collection. We are sponsored by Pixel Addict magazine this week. Thank you very much. There is a new issue. Um, The cover story is... Pixel art, and it's a lovely picture of someone colouring in the boxes on graph paper as they draw, or at least I think they're drawing Count Ducula. Um, there's a really fascinating point made in the article about it, how, about how bedroom developers could re-enter the free on the same level as big software houses with pixel art, and it makes a good point because if you've got a grid of however many pixels it is, then that's all there is. That, that's it's just what you what just what you choose to do with that. Whereas these days, with 
enormously complicated textures you're buying in the content or you're having it made by someone else and it's just not the same it's not the same as what you one person can make so maybe that's the purity of pixel art there's also an article on games workshop video games in the 90s i've not read yet i'm going to I'm looking forward to reading that one um I particularly love games workshop themed stuff so i'll be reading that and see if there's anything i'm not aware of um tony what's the url for it Good question. Tony? Sorry, it's, uh, Tony? Uh, I, bet, Tony. I believe it's uh, pixel.addict. Is that correct? Pixel? Pixel.addict.media. Oh, sorry. Yes, right. Pixel.addict.media. So sorry, I was a bit distracted because whenever I hear Pixel Addict, I keep thinking of the old song, System Addict by Five Star. And yes. I want to keep thinking to myself, Pixel Addict. <laughs> I better not sing that because I don't want to get a copyright strike on the channel. But, you know, I'm not so, sure, sorry, I'm I'm not sure they'll pick it up. It's a... <laughs> That was perfect rendition. I've said so, exactly the same thing, Tony. Yes. Do you want to leave? Well, you've now, got, you've now got a theme tune. A theme tune for a magazine. How useless is that? Systematic. <laughs> Look it up. So, thank you for sponsoring us. Um, they are available in your local shops every six weeks uh, or online. Get the PDF, get it delivered, whatever it is. Help out Pixel Addict in their wonderful endeavour. The early days of arcade games moved slowly. Certainly relative to how things changed in the 80s, they moved very slowly. In fact, there's this sort of weird counterintuitive truth about video games in general that turns out they started in the early 60s. And it really took until the end of the 70s to catch fire, and then they boomed in the 80s. And ever since then, it's just been this meteoric rise in the 90s they were massively popular and then we had the the original xbox coming out and that a whole new legions of people playing games and it's got more popular now to the point where it's the biggest entertainment industry but in the 60s it really wasn't um it was just about non-existent but it was there um, and 1962's Space War, with an exclamation mark, had two ships fighting in the gravity well of a star. It was made for a mini computer, which are those things, maybe massive filing cabinet type things, the PDP-1. It got a few enhancements over time, and then two rather important people decided to turn it into a coin-operated arcade machine. So in 1971, Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney, who of course would later go on to found Atari, made Computer Space. It's recognisably the same game, but with a few a, a few differences, some differences. It's like a calmer version of Asteroids in appearance. It's not as frenetic as Asteroids. And in fact, I, I didn't play this game. Uh, I played Asteroids as a kid, and Asteroids is probably much more famous than Space War and Computer Space. Uh, but you can definitely see where, where Asteroids has come from. It's got this this wonderful sound ambience going on throughout it. It's not complicated sounds, and it's not a tune, but it does a great deal of the heavy lifting for the experience. It makes you feel, it, it, it draws you in. And I, I can't talk about it without talking about the, the wonderful cabinet for it, the, the unique cabinet for it. Nothing like it's nothing like what you see in a standard JAMA cab at all. It's all rounded plastic edges, and it looks like it was taken from a star from a Star Trek set. 
it's incredible the, the, the thing it's, it's retro definitely retro futurism um and i've seen red ones and blue ones and gold ones too i'm not sure what the I'm not sure if there was a standard color whether you, whether it signifies what's it, what particular model it is i don't know but they're absolutely amazing uh, and there's a link in the show notes to a fantastic online emulator of it even if you just give it just 30 seconds just to get a feel for how it looks and sounds with the it's it's a what's called an xy or a vector monitor so it's got a lovely glow to it like an oscilloscope um but it's 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 unique um the reason for me talking about today though is a submission from g7vfy to a hackaday article of someone making a replica of it and having it up and running. And I want to say thanks to the other two links on it. One is a blog going into great detail, detail about the game from Video Game Historian and the other to an emulator. So thanks for being thorough on that. What's cool about it, though, is there's no microprocessor in it. It's all made of discrete components. Microprocessors weren't that big a deal, weren't that... that, that um, that commonplace in 1971 so it's all discrete components there's loads and there's three layers of it and when, it, when i look at the pcbs they're, they're incredible now another reason i picked this up though is because the original forum post where you can see the pcbs is from a forum called aussie arcade so i presume the guy is a real australian just like half of you two guys tony what do you think yeah, well, look, it's funny you should mention the Aussie connection there, Dave. Uh, a couple of months back, uh, Craig and I talked about a documentary that recently came out called Still Standing, which is about the history of arcades and arcade gaming here in Australia. And, and even if you're not an Australian yourself, you'll probably get a kick out of it because there's some fantastic stuff in there talking about the people that were involved with arcades back in the day and, and enthusiasts and some people, like there was one dude who'd been pretty much hoarding machines for the last 40 years, just sort of accumulating them as, as nobody wanted them and there were people being thrown out and left in paddocks and dumped or whatever and it was kind of like gradually just, like I said, this this he had like a warehouse well, not quite a warehouse, but a very, very big shed out in Queensland with all these old machines in them. It's a fantastic documentary. It's available online. I think I think uh, Tubi, Tubi TV is where it's available for free, hundred percent legal. So definitely worth checking it out there. But I think it also might be on a couple of the streaming platforms, like uh, I think it's on Prime and a couple of others. So so it's definitely worth looking for. It's called Still Standing. And did you want me to leave a link for you for that one? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Duncan Ladder, yeah, yeah, we'll organise that. That's cool. Uh, yeah, um, but uh, speaking of Australia, well, actually, Australia was an interesting place uh, back then because obviously, being a fair bit away from the rest of the world and having tariffs and stuff, so importing stuff was expensive for various reasons. And there were companies down here that actually made uh, arcade cabinets and made a lot of the components down here. Obviously, importing the ROMs and stuff from from overseas to actually make them work. And probably the most famous one of those uh, is Leisure and Allied Industries. And their machines were everywhere. And the thing is with the machines, their machines are very distinctive because they, they're they all basically the same same design. It was like an upright, they, they have two designs. Like an upright cabinet was probably the, the one most people saw. And it was like, had like the veneer sides and all that stuff. It just looked like the, the wood veneer kind of 1980s television. And the only way you could tell which game was actually on it was by the marquee 
uh, along the along the top of it because they're all very generic sort of sort of case. But obviously the buttons are all the same as well. I think they were all made in Australia as well uh, back then because that's how it was. And the other style of cabinet you'd see here a lot would be the cocktail cabinet, which uh, you know the one we'd sit down and that was pretty cool as well. Uh, but the funny part is uh, with, with these sorts of cabinets is that. Um, Obviously, the games, for the most part, were properly licensed, but particularly towards the, the end of the 80s and the early 90s when you could tell that these machines had been around for quite a while and may have been sort of like second-hand or third-hand by that time, you'd, started seeing, you'd start seeing these, uh, these games that would pop up on these machines and it would say stuff on there like uh, only, only like, oh, I can't believe that, that phrase. I think it's like not for sale outside Japan. That was a phrase. Uh, and uh, and and I think it's called the attract screen where, where this shows up. And uh, I thought it was really weird. Like you go to a dodgy little fish and chip shop and you say not for sale outside of Japan. We didn't think about it back then when we were kids. We just put our 20 cents or our 40 cents in there or whatever. But I just think it's funny how towards the end that's how things kind of, uh, I, I kind of went. I mean, bear in mind, I probably have misremembered a few things here and it's been a few months since I've seen Still Standing. So, look, if there's any any factual errors that I've made here, that's what the comment section's for. That's what the subreddit's for. So I'm more than happy to, to have people jump in and, and kind of uh, clarify anything that I've actually said. But uh, as for Asteroids, uh, my first memory was playing that on, a, on an Atari VCS at a friend's house when I was about seven, I reckon. Um, and all I remember about it is I found it quite tricky because stuff was coming from me at all angles and I was only barely struggling with Space Invaders at the time because that was kind of obviously year seven, you sort of struggle a bit in general. But, uh, yeah, that was my first experience with, uh, with Asteroids. Uh, how did you find it, Chris? Well, before I get into Asteroids, actually, you, you, my ears pricked up when you said about Leisure Alloyed Industries because it suddenly, I suddenly thought, wait a minute. And sure enough, I've checked on Marketplace on something I w- I've been keeping my eye on. I'm not going to buy it. I'm not. I'm not going to buy it. But there's, it would have been a later one. There's a stand-up cab, Neo Geo, um, and he's got some games to sell with it. And part of the description says, selling an original Australian Leisure Allied Industries, Neo Geo 2. So there you go. And I can see the cab. I mean, most of the Neo Geos were like that. They were kind of generic cabs, depending on who was putting them out at the time. And they could easily swap out the game boards, as you know. But um, yeah, there you go. So I, when I read that on market, I had no idea who that was. I didn't know the Australian history. So that didn't pique my interest. Now, damn it, that's in Perth too. Anyway, um, <laughs> I'm going to ignore it. Yeah, I think the uh, still standing. I think they talk a little bit more about LAI as as ex, as the um, enthusiasts call it, and I'm, I, I'm surprised there's not more about them on the internet. And one of these days, mm. on the ever growing list of, of videos or other content, you know, that I think needs to be made to talk about these bits of Australian gaming and computing history, someone really needs to do a deep dive into LAI and really just make some. You know, make make like a really like deep dive in terms of like a, a doco or whatever. Maybe not quite the same caliber as still standing with like a proper film crew or whatever. But there's certainly some stories to be told about nice. or, or about all, all this sort of stuff down here, for that matter. You're making me want that cap more and more. Don't do it. Um, no, okay, no, no. asteroids. Before I get distracted, no, I got my car needs a new fuel tank. Right, so. <laughs> Asteroids. Um, I definitely played Asteroids, um, and it's not necessarily Asteroids as in called Asteroids, but it's one of those games that is so popular that it's been cloned over and over again, and it falls into one of my earliest gaming memories um, of playing Mindstorm on a Vectrex a couple of doors down, um, which I I lied on your podcast, actually, Tony, 
because I said I would have been about six or seven. I, I then went away and did the maths, and with the release date of the Vetrex, I must have been eight years old. So there we go. Correction. Public correction. Um, I'll make sure that goes in the next episode, Chris, as part yes. of our feedback section. As part of your Tony's briefs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we call it the feedback uh, because it's uh, not quite feedback and not quite a mailbag. So, and it was oh, just an exclusive to use the sound effect of a horse eating out of a feedback. But that's, sorry, there's I'm just, nothing wrong with that. <laughs> but now I'll shut up. <laughs> but yeah, Mindstorm, Asteroids, it's a game I love and it's a game you can pick up even now like on the Atari collection. You just play it and it's, it's just fun for as long as you want it to be, If whether that's 30 seconds or 30 minutes or, you know, a couple of hours. You can just keep going. If you've got a mate to try and beat high scores even better. Um, but not played the other two, not played Computer Space until I had a look at this emulator that you mentioned, Dave. Um, so I did have a look at that. And I think that's a very good example of what I was talking about the other week of hoping that emulation starts to mature in terms of, okay, we can now emulate the chipsets, we can emulate the game ROMs, now let's start to emulate what they actually looked and sounded like as you played them and start to bring more of that sort of tactile feedback in, into, into emulation. And this does that very well. You know, it emulates the bezel, including handwritten notes explaining what the numbers mean on the side because there's nothing on the screen to explain it. Um, and even even the sound, they, they've they've tried to mimic that sort of uh, sort of fairly poor quality early speaker in, in inside the cab. You know, you got a bit of a, a hiss to it. Um, rather than, I mean, they could have just taken the pure digital sound effect and and pushed that through emulation, but it would have sounded too crisp. Um, and what I really like, and this is what I'm talking about, especially for vector based games, is they emulate the light trails on the screen when things move. So they've sort of thought about you know how did how did the lights dim as stuff moved from one spot to another and how can we replicate that in the visuals in in emulation and it just it, it's lovely to play it's it's really cool but it's it's a bit of a i tell you the um those sources they they're very good if you have a go, go at this game in emulation just watch out because they're very good at shooting off the screen to shoot you up the butt it's really not good it's at a reasonably early stage and, and getting getting this whole thing working is a reasonably early stage because getting these PCBs and the logic working is only one step along the journey. The next stage for them is to get it connected up to some kind of monitor. But I hope this ends up being with a full-on replica from scratch all the way through to getting the, the moulded, weird-looking Star Trek cabinet done at the end. So it's, it's fascinating. But... As I've said, take a few seconds to look at the emulator to, to get a, to get a vibe for it. It's otherworldly. It just it's something about it. Something about it. Into the wonderful. Into the wonderful. Um, some interesting responses in the Amstrad and Sinclair Spectrum thing. I always, I, I personally thought the one two eight was the Toast Rack was the last Sinclair one and the plus twos were Amstrad. On, on the podcast, I think was it you, Chris, said it's not the case and other people have said well, no, it's not. Yeah. But there's I been discussion maybe and the it's not clear. maybe the first plus two was the last one and then Amstrad took over with the later yeah, plus two. It's not, it's not clear. I, people, yeah. Yeah. People are saying both, so I, I don't know. I've not had a chance to find a thorough answer on it. Um, so um, I will at some point and... I go back through the comments and maybe find out if someone's got a definitive kind of here's the kind of the, the answer on it. Um, we're still getting lots of interesting stuff about 
Radio Shack and Tandy, lots of people's experience. So it seems as if it's a really important place in people's memories. And quite a few mentioning the Battery Club, which we had no idea. I had no idea about the Battery Club, but it seems lots of people um, remember it and like it. Tony, do you know about the Battery Club? Yes, I do. And I'm a little bit surprised that you hadn't heard of it because I thought it was everywhere where there was a Tandy or a Radio Shack. And it's it's quite a big thing in popular culture. I've heard it mentioned in, I think it was even mentioned in an episode of The Simpsons once. So it's actually a pretty big thing as part of uh, popular culture goes. And the way the way the battery, the, the Radio Shack Battery Club would work is that once a year, I think it might have been with the big catalogue that you'd get once a year, but you'd get this card and it would entitle the bearer to one free battery a month. And it wasn't like an alkaline or anything. It was just like your standard, you know, whatever it was, like super heavy duty type of whatever they used to make them out of. And it was your standard, like think back in those days, you could either have a double A, a C, D or a nine volt. Now, I know some people would just grab the nine volt every single month because it was the most expensive battery to buy. But um, I I didn't really have much of a use case for nine volts. So I would just get one double A battery a month and I would find I'd get a little bit of free runtime on my Walkman. Not much so, uh, runtime because I did listen to a lot of music, but um, you know it was okay. nice to get like I don't know five hours of five hours worth of free runtime. I walk when once every two months, so you know it's a result. So you would go into you would get this and you wouldn't pay for it. The battery no, would come no, free. It was complimentary. You, you get this card and you go up to the Tandy and and they'd, they'd, you'd go and you'd say, look, I want a, I would like a double A battery, please. And they would give you a double A battery. They'd, they'd cut the little, I think they use those little things that would punch the tickets to actually punch a hole yeah. in that month. And then you'd be able to come back next month and grab the next battery. Or did they cross it off? I forget how they did it, but it was literally they'd like, like tick off each box. It was kind of like when you'd go and like when you, when Subway used to have the sub club where you'd actually get stamps every time you'd buy subs and then you know, collect. It's sort of like that sort of situation, like a loyalty type thing, but there was no purchase required other than the initial like, big-ass catalogue, which was like a dollar or two, and that was like the, the big catalogue for the year. I guess it, from their perspective, it got you coming into the shop and mm. nine times out of ten or something because in there, unless they're a kid like us who would be having no money at all to spend, then there would be there would be other purchases made. That's um, that's wild. Um, mm. In other news, we've kept, we mentioned stereo separation and we talked about this thing, the Bass MX. So I bought myself a Bass MX, which is a little add-on board that goes on the back of the Amiga and it connects, takes, it takes power in, it connects to the, the inputs of the Amiga and outputs on RCA and it will help balance the, the awful, the awful stereo separation, terrible stereo separation that makes the Amiga uh, totally useless. Chris, is that Sorry, Dave, your, your microphone cut out there. I don't know what's gone wrong. Um, I don't, oh, is that what this button on the control thing? And okay, hang on. I might have I might have muted you accidentally. You have to unmute yourself. I can't unmute you. Well, saying that the Amiga stereo separation is bad is like saying that surface noise on a vinyl record is bad. It's an operating characteristic. It's part of its charm. <laughs> um, this, I don't know what happened to your microphone. Sorry, Dave. <laughs> this improves it. This um, you'll still get a separate stereo separation, but you'll also it, it will move the lower frequency stuff into the center, okay. where, where the lower frequency stuff really belongs there. Now oh. it turns out that producer Duncan also bought one, and he's had a chance to use it. I've not had a chance to use mine. I, I, I'm, I'm swamped at the moment, um, 
and my amiga's working so i'm not gonna i'm not gonna interfere with it for, for a while but he's connected and he says he plugged it into his big stereo and it works pretty well so there you go um a solution for a problem that i identified with uh, the horrendous horrendous amiga sound oh it nearly happened again uh, i think <laughs> <laughs> is that in the end chris Stop bullying me um <laughs> Using Brief from the subreddit, there's an Ultima-inspired game, Moonring, which is available for free. Loads of positive responses to it. I've got a video in my watch queue to, to get to. Um, Testa has put in a Mr. T advert for the Atari XL. This is Atari. This is the, nothing like his voice there. Don't even do that again, Dave. That was terrible. I can't do a Mr. T voice. He says, this is Atari. This is the best. Um, tomorrow, tomorrow's World from the 60s segment on computer terminals in the home. So Tomorrow's World was a TV program in, in, on the BBC in Britain in the, the, the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. I don't know when it stopped. And it would talk about what's coming next. It was always, it was always positive. It was always forward-looking. We all loved it. And they were talking about having computer terminals in the home. And it didn't turn out that way, although it did in France, I think. Um, there's a video from Vintage Computer Fest this year with Leonard, Leonard Tramiel, um, the son of um, Jack. Uh, is his son of Jack or Sam? Or is he the grandson of... I don't know. No, I think Sam and Leonard are the sons of Jack. And I believe right, that, right, yeah, okay. I believe Sam actually worked at Commodore before moving on to Atari. I think Leonard might be yes. the younger the younger of the, of right. the sons. But right. I know obviously I wasn't... all the Tremils were pretty big at Atari once. Uh, yeah. Once yeah. yeah. Uh, and Dave McMurty on early Commodore history. And if you thought Doom on things was a little bit of a cliche, well, what about Tetris on an oscilloscope? And an interesting article suggests that might things might become retro when the online service gets taken down. And I liked the idea until I thought more about it and thought, hang on, that means Diablo 4 will be retro next year when Blizzard kill it off. It's wow. that unpopular. Um, there's much more on the subreddit. They'll go and have and take a look um, and see what you like or submit articles to it. Chris, there's, there's one you've got thing something to say, haven't you? Yeah, I have. There's one story we're not going to cover ever, um, and I'm, I'm tempted to say we're never covering any more stories uh, from GameSpot. It's a very serious thing, I've got to say, um, because they, they did a story of the best Batman games of all time, and they didn't feature Batman the movie on the Amiga. They instead chose the NES version of the 1989 Batman game. So that's it. I'm off GameSpot. Don't post any more stories from Game. You can, but, yeah, we're not covering that one because they got it wrong. I think they're American. That probably explains a lot. The the NES version is is a completely different game. It's not it's not the same game at all. It's mm. completely different to the Amiga port of the Atari ST Classic Batman game. That's it. Yeah, they, um, the list is wrong. <laughs> terrible, 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 terrible. Okay, so once upon a time, I had an Atari Jaguar because Atari made games, so it was going to be awesome. Uh, meanwhile, my eldest sister held off buying a gift for her nephew, uh, for my nephew, sorry, her son, and eventually on release bought him a Sony PlayStation, something I'd stayed well clear of because Sony make hi-fis, they know nothing about gaming. Well, the PlayStation bloody well took off, didn't it? Um, and a big part of that was the music. 
Okay, the, the PlayStation, while not the first console to use CD as a media, sure became the first successful one, in my opinion, and enjoyed mass adoption, as we know, and continues to this day, now in its fifth iteration. Back then, uh, it kind of blew us away. You know, awesome games, excellent graphics, but the sound and the soundtrack with mainstream bands getting on board, like, you know, Cold Storage, Chemical Brothers, and Left Field, it was just absolutely stunning. It was almost like VR for your ears, Dave. Um, and I, I recall it was kind of a turning point in my understanding. Uh, it was was a conversation with a colleague at Woolworths where I worked at the time, and he, and he pointed out to me, he said, but it, it uses the CD to play the music, and it's CD-quality music. Have you even played Wipeout were his words? And that's when it started to click with me how, how you know important this technology was. There's a story shared with us by Nick Farley, and it's um, not from one of our usual sources. It's from whathifi.com. The story is about the original PlayStation still having a following, but not just from gamers, but from audiophiles. So it seems there's a bit of a niche group that likes to use PlayStations, the original PlayStation, just for its CD playing capabilities. And those using it for audio seem to even get a kick out of modding them to make them look more hi-fi in inverted commas as well. So, guys, let's just jump in. Memories of the original PlayStation, but also music on CD. Is that still a thing for you guys, Tony? Yeah, I'm I'm glad you picked this story up, Chris, because I've got plenty to say about this, and it feels like it follows on nicely from the cassette story from last week's show. Uh, you're absolutely spot on about the about the soundtrack music. Uh, the PlayStation, as far as music integrating with games, that was an absolute game changer. That was an absolute game changer, if you'll pardon the pun. Uh, but what I find really amusing about this particular story is that um, I remember discussions back in the mid two thousands about how the OG PlayStation, I think it's the SCPH one thousand series was supposedly an audiophile quality CD player with this amazing laser and this really hardcore DAC and all this other sort of stuff. And to make sure I wasn't misremembering, I went back to the forum that I saw this on, you know, back in the day. And yet there are still threads from 2005 where they're talking about how the, the original PlayStation is supposed to be just an awesome CD player. Um, that said, though, um, I'm not sure if I'd use one myself as a daily driver CD player because the interface just isn't there. I mean, I'm I'm a big, big, big CD guy, and I think, uh, well, in my opinion, CD is the best music format of all time, and you get the physical experience of vinyl, uh, obviously in a slightly shrunken down form, so you still get the cover art and you get the booklet and you get the, the tactile feeling of taking the disc out and then putting it in the player and all that sort of stuff. Um, and don't get me wrong, I still I do love vinyl and I do have, like, I've got my, my dad's old Technics turntable. It's as nearly as old as I am and I love that and I do have some vinyl albums. But the trouble is they're so expensive and it's just such a cliche these days. Whereas I, it's not as cheap now, but I remember as recently as maybe five or six years ago, I could go to I could go to an op shop or I could go to Cashies and I could buy CDs for 50 cents each. And we're not talking about, like, Susan Boyle or Hillsong or the usual kind of crap that tends to infest those sorts of establishments, but actual good CDs for not a heck of a lot of money. And even now you're paying like three, four five dollars a CD. And whilst it's not as cheap as it used to be, you know, for what you get, 
you know, it's it's still fantastic value for money. In fact, I've got I've got just under a thousand CDs, and I'm thinking maybe I should just get some more just to kind of push myself into that four figures. And it's just nice to they're just really nice to to listen to. So sit down in my favorite chair of a Friday evening, you know, um, maybe a glass of like a nice single mold or a G&T or whatever and just and just chill and listen to some, like properly listen to some music, not worry about the other distractions, you know, get away from the computer and just actually listen and that's just such a wonderful experience. As for the PS1, I had one back in the day and honestly I bought it just for, well, I don't remember if I bought it or I got it as a present. I was I was in my early 20s at the time but I remember that I was really jonesing to play Gran Turismo and that's the reason I got it because I'm a car guy, uh, loved cars, especially back then, and every game I had for that PS1 was a driving game. In fact, I can't remember any game it was, and I had, what did I have? I had like GT1 and 2, had Formula 1 97, hot, Need for Speed, Hot Pursuit, um, uh, the uh, F1 97, I think I've said that already, uh, Colin McRae Rally, but my favourites of that era were the Toka, the Toka games. Um, and my absolute favourite of all time is Toka 2, um, the vehicle physics are just spot on. They still hold up to this day. Um, the damage is realistic. Uh, the AI drivers are really aggressive because I know back in the late 90s when we'd see the BTCC on Foxtel, the drivers were just insane. And Tiff Nadell uh, narrates the cover scene, the cutscenes. What more could you want? I'd love to start collecting PS1 games again. I don't necessarily want a PS1 because I've still got my, my uh, PS2 fat that I had from back in the day. So that plays the PS1 stuff. And as far as CD players go, I've got a beautiful late 80s vintage Sony CD player in my hi-fi stack, which sounds absolutely magnificent. So whilst I think it's cool what they're doing with the PlayStation 1, and I know that if you're starting from scratch, that from retro collecting perspective, they're still quite affordable. But personally, I'd probably just go straight for the PS2 and have both sets of uh, um, libraries to, to choose from, uh, Dave. My audio file snake oil klaxon is going off in my head um there's a there's a sentence there that says some users claim that the original playstation performs as well as a contemporary cd player worth many thousands of pounds so every cd player with a digital output performs exactly as well as every other cd player with a digital output it's just a way of getting data off the disk. So it all comes down to the, the DAC, which is the digital to analog conversion. And if the DAC in an original PlayStation performs as well as a contemporary CD player worth thousands of pounds, then the contemporary CD player worth thousands of pounds is either a fraud or the listener's an idiot. Maybe sounds better than a cheap CD player. It's maybe a perfectly good one. It's maybe you wouldn't want to spend money on something better, but the idea that it's the secret, the secret sauce in it that a, a PlayStation One is is better than a five thousand pound or two thousand pound, whatever it is, CD player, obviously nonsense. Um, the article does say it has a good DAC in it, but I just. Uh, Audiophiles like to justify spending lots of money on things that look nice by saying it looks better, or that the, um, or that that it sounds better, and which often it doesn't sound better, or in many cases it can't sound better. It couldn't sound better if it's talking about the digital part of it. Just say you want it. Just say you've got the money for it. You want it. It looks nice, and that's how you want to spend your money. There's no harm in that at all. You don't need to make things up. 
No, I'm just sorry to, to jump in there, Dave, but when you're talking about the stuff that audiophiles tend to do to justify purchases and stuff and try to extract better sound out of CD, CDs and CD players, it reminds me of uh, Techmoan made a few videos, um, I think towards the end of last mm. year. One of the videos he made yes. was of this device where you shave the edges of the CDs. It was like a 400-pound yes. device. And supposedly, yeah. because it was to do with, you know, if, if there was a certain angle at the edge of the CDs, it, it was supposed yeah. to make the light bounce around better or whatever. But really, all it looked like to me is a very handy way or an expensive way to make some weapons because I can't see how the <laughs> hell you could actually expect better performance just by, you know, turning these things into like a, a round shiv slash ninja star type situation. I just don't get how that's supposed to work. But, yes, I'm not entirely convinced about the audiophile st- stuff. But, yeah, the fact this, this rumour has been going around for a couple of decades is just nuts. Yeah, Tech Moon's fantastic for for debunking the, this nonsense. And he doesn't start out by saying this is nonsense and going to debunk it. He tries to do it with as much of a straight face as he can, <laughs> although you, you can see his dry sense of yeah. humour through it. And he, he covered the, the, the shaving it. He's covered a demagnetizer for oh, them as God, well, which is obviously right. nonsense as well. I, I, CDs contain digital data. If you get the digital data off them, that's it. There's, there's no right and wrong in it. Um, it's, 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 sorry, sorry, there is right and wrong with it. It's either right or it's wrong. Mm-hmm. You don't get this muddy thing that you do with other things. Just it, it, to me, it's it's like the argument with emulation versus real hardware. Nobody needs real hardware. Emulation is perfect. Emulation is great. You get a wonderful experience with emulation. It's always fine. If you're using real hardware, it's because you want to use it. So if you're spending stuff, if you're taking a, a original PlayStation and you're modding it, you're adding valves and so on to it, more power to you. I hope you have a great time. It looks great. But don't say, oh, I need to, or don't say, oh, I'm doing this because it's the, the, the modern CD players are a, are a scam and this is just as good. Just tell the truth. Now, as far as CDs, I never had... I didn't have a, a large CD library. For me, it was cassettes. Uh, we talked about cassettes last week. I bought cassettes because quite often, in fact, nearly always, if I was listening to music, I was doing it with headphones. I lived with my parents back then. Um, so I, I, I didn't have a large CD libraries. And by the time the MP3s came along, I moved from cassettes to MP3s. Didn't have so many CDs. Recently, though, I've been buying... I bought a vinyl record player. I bought a Technics record player, and I bought vinyl records for that. But at 25 quid each, I wasn't going to buy an entire music library very quickly. Uh, I told myself I'd buy one a month. But I can go on eBay, and if I want to buy a CD, I can pay a couple of quid for it and have it delivered. So I've got quite a few CDs now because they're cheap, they're great, they're fine, and again, you take it out of the box, put it in, and deliberately put it on, and you disconnect from the digital thing. So they're not as nice as vinyl, um, but they're a lot more convenient and a lot cheaper. Um, so, yeah, um, I, I, I'm, I now have, I maybe now have more CDs than I ever did back in the day. Wow. I've still got all my original CD collection, but like you, Dave, it was never a big collection to start with. But it's something I've just never let go. Like computer games and stuff, I sort of sold one system and the games to buy the next. Music, I guess because it's such a transferable medium, I've just always mm. stuck with it. A bit like my movies, you know, I've, I've never seen the need to let them go. Um, I did go through a period of um, capturing them all to MP3 so that I could use them yeah. 
whatever player, but I still kept the original discs. I'm glad I did. Uh, and in fact, most of them are actually, they're quite bad for jumping because they've got so many scratches on them from overuse um, because I've mm. just used them over and over again. Um, oddly enough, at the moment in my setup, I don't actually have a decent CD player. It's something I need to get, but it's also why I'm so keen on putting the CD TV in a hi-fi stack. Now, I want to do that, as I've mentioned before, just out of curiosity, how well does the CD TV fit in that function that apparently it was intended for. Um, but I, I doubt I'll, after I've done that, I doubt I'll use that long-term as the sole CD player, mainly because I don't want to burn out the laser on the CD TV because that would be a pain in the butt. Um, so I will get another CD player. Uh, but, yeah, I just love the medium. It, it hasn't died off as far as I'm concerned. Oh, you can still buy them brand new in the shops, you know. It's 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 kind of current. There's no, you know. there's nothing other than, other than downloads and mp3s there's no there's no other physical format that's replaced cds it seems ah. to be the maybe the, the last one we'll get for music yeah uh, i wasn't big into vinyl but there are a couple i remember me and my mates were heavily into a certain album that we just all, all thought it was like melting our brains so we loved it um it was trouble gum by therapy and one of my mates had it on this big green vinyl and that's how I listened to it. We got the crackle and everything. And then I ended up with a recording to cassette of that same album. But of course, it still had the crackle from the vinyl. Eventually bought it myself on CD. And great album though it is, it doesn't sound right because it needs that. It just mm. made this, mm. just made it just sound that much heavier. It was fantastic. Mm. Um, but in terms of uh, the PlayStation, so going back to that, um, I do need to get a PlayStation 1 for I've already collected some games and they're very affordable. In fact, I could have picked up there was about four for sale at the nexus toy fair but i spent my money on something else um but you can pick them up cheap as chips still which is great um before i continue actually best game soundtrack any system dave you know i'm gonna have to say tie fighter but that's Ooh. because of the, the star wars music and because of iMuse. but that's not what you're asking it's not cd music no, it, doesn't, it want... doesn't have to be cd music so any system I, yeah. I, i'm gonna give you a proper answer um the fallout series I, I love how they picked old stuff I didn't know, but it was really good. It was like the best of music that, that has kind of for, been forgotten about. It was mm. great, uh, and it really su suited the atmosphere. But if you wanted atmospheric music, then the Elder Scrolls series had wonderful, wonderful music in it. It really suits, and it helps the, It helps lift the game. It, it, and it, it, yeah, Elder Scrolls, yeah. Nice. Tony? Yeah. GTA Vice City uh, for the Ooh. PS2, and not just for the music, but the talk breaks and the fake ads in the in-game radio stations are comedy gold, and the fact that Rockstar went to so much trouble to put that into the game, it's just it was just full on. It blew my mind 20 years ago, and it still blows my mind today. I think, I think Fallout 3... Um, ripped off that idea with their radio because they, they had a similar thing going on there. I'm fairly sure that there's inspiration taken from GTA in that in that regard. I had Vice City on the PC and the, the most dangerous discovery was finding the WAV files on the CD. Um, <laughs> or was it? Or no, how did I convert? I remember I, got, I basically got the sounds off the CD, put them into MP3 format and put them on a CD to play in the car. So I had the Vice City radio stations <laughs> in my car in real life. Do not try that at home. It's it's not good. <laughs> not good for your driving habits. Did a similar thing with the Carmageddon soundtrack as well. Um, yeah, for me, actually, Carmageddon soundtrack, that's fantastic. Obviously, you've got Quake 1 and 2. They've both got fantastic soundtracks. Um, 
Yeah, can't really pick one. Wipeout. Going back to the PlayStation, Wipeout was fantastic. Um, so even though I never owned a PlayStation, my nephew did, and there's definitely got some standout games that I've got a lot of nostalgia for. Um, Destruction Derby, fantastic. Doom, I swear it's the best port of Doom. I'm sorry, I'm going to say it. PlayStation port is fantastic, Doom 1 and 2. And again, the use of CD sound um, rather than the original soundtrack actually makes it a lot more atmospheric. Um, the original Resident Evil, Battle Arena to Shinjin, and of course Gran Turismo, as you mentioned, Tony, as well. Um, but yeah, Wipeout. Wipeout, there was just, it was just something else, and not just because of the game, which was amazing, but also because of the music. And in fact, while I was researching this story, I thought, oh, yeah, I feel like listening to that again. So I dug up, you know, a couple of links on YouTube, uh, found the soundtrack on YouTube. And whilst listening to it, as you do, scroll through the comments and the top three comments, just say it all, really. So uh, Zoliol, yeah, I'll pronounce it like that, 10 months ago said, as a kid holding that case, playing the game, it felt like some sort of secret future tech I wasn't even supposed to see. Yep, I can I can attest to that. Uh, and then Alex Castaneta seven seven six one eleven months ago said the game that got me into electronic music twenty five years later, and I have not grown out of it. So there you go, game influencing his taste of music. And then uh, Depafio ten months ago, it's twenty twenty two, and this original soundtrack still slaps. Fantastic, yeah, absolutely. I'll put a link to that um, the soundtrack in the show notes. But back to the article, uh, what hi-fi.com do talk about how regarded the CD player in the PlayStation now is as an affordable CD playing solution. So I think that's where they're coming yeah, at. So I, yeah, mm. going back to, to, to my uh, um, my grumbling earlier on, an affordable CD playing solution sounds perfectly fine to me. There's nothing wrong with saying that at all. Yeah, that's right. And, the, and they also link in this story to an older story of their own, which in turn has scans of an original print story that they did in What Hi-Fi magazine when the PlayStation first came out. So What Hi-Fi magazine actually reviewed the PlayStation on its musical capability merits. And in 1995, as a CD player, they gave the original PlayStation two stars out of five. (laughs) They should have stuck to playing Wipeout. So on now to question of the week. And this week, it's all about system or game rage. Tony, are you an angry man? Uh, not usually, although I do have my moments. I think <laughs> we all do. Uh, we asked listeners to confess their worst instance of rage at a game or at a system that just wouldn't play fair. Did you simply walk away or did you, did you take it out on some poor inanimate object? Uh, Duncan's got his answer and he says, oddly enough, I don't remember raging at games back in the day. If I didn't like something, I just stopped playing. Today, though, Call of Duty winds me up no end and it's not unheard of me to just switch off mid-game. I don't have the reflexes of a teenager anymore. Chris, what's the top answer? Imaginary Swing 8606 says, I do believe that Quickshot made an absolute fortune out of me in the 80s. One unfortunate time would have been playing Street Fighter 2 on a stock A500. The only thing that didn't get beat up was uh, the roster of fighters. The Amiga got it. The Quickshot was launched across the room and the discs used as frisbees. Never again. Fair, fair comment, mate. <laughs> Absolutely fair comment. Lord Borak. 
316 says, these days is an accusation of people cheating in Warzone or whatever. So you get that one final kill, then rage quit complaining about cheats. It was always the same. It was always lag or bad map or whatever. In my Amiga and Amstrad days, it was the computer itself that got the blame or the game itself. You cheating, yellow, yellowing, cheaty something. Haha, <laughs> look at the power switch, right? You've been turned off for a few hours. You sit there and think about what you did. That shut the cheat up. As an engineer, and even as a kid, I hated breaking things, so I would often raise to throw the joystick, but my brain would say, no, you'll hurt it, just turn it off and walk away, go play football, or go play, paint Blood Bowl figures instead. My oldest brother, however, smashed the out of, you'll have to bleep there, Duncan, beep, smashed the out of dozens of quick shots, and now I'll shut up. Do you think his brother was imaginary swing? <laughs> Maybe that's his brother in the first answer. Sorry, Tony, yeah. third answer? Yes, the third answer is from X Battle Station. I had a Spectrum Plus 3. I had a few discs, but mostly I had copied games onto tape and loaded them in via my tape machine and dodgy cable. It was temperamental. I think while failing to load a game for the 17th time, I brought my fist down heavily on the poor Plus 3. Oh. From then on... I had a not-so-nice concave keyboard, a bit like on those fancy new PCs. Edit. Can you count the number of mentions of each machine in the answers and see which ones come out on top? My money is on the spectrum. <laughs> yeah. And we talked about this in Discord, actually, this week, and, it, and the view was that if you had a, a plus two spectrum or a CPC 464, the ones with a built-in data set, you had an easy life. Yeah. And if you didn't, if you had to buy your own data set or tape, tape deck, then it was down to whether you got a good one or not. I think I must have a good one. I think, Chris, you must have had the worst one in England when you bought it. Well, also as well, to add to that, the, the, the port on the back of the Plus 3 was not the best quality and it was known to come loose right. as well. So you were fighting that as well. Oh, yeah. I had mine repaired about four times. So, yeah. yeah. I came to the Spectrum party extremely late. My first Specky I got in 2020. So I've mm. never had these problems because I've either used the, uh, well, I forget the name of the Did app. I've, always, I've used an app on my phone to load games. Uh, oh, yeah. Or I've used, I've got a, um, I was going to say a Tony, uh, a Tony uh, SCM, but it's a Sony, sorry, a Sony mm. TCM 818 cassette player it's an excellent cassette player in fact uh, i think uh, i think someone else chinny vision uh, is a massive fan of these he made a video about yeah. his favorite um, i know the one you the sets. black yeah, one the kind of it's, it's a black yeah. one it's like sort of uh, yeah. instead of being like a shoebox it's kind of like they've yeah. turned it around 90 degrees not quite yeah. period correct but it's a brilliant machine i never have a problem with loading stuff into my electron or any of my speckies yeah. or anything like that so yeah you're right i think it boils down to just how good the, the data set is and oddly enough i didn't have problems with my commodore data set either with my vic 20 because again you know yeah. it was made for that machine yeah funnily enough i'm having the same journey so with the with the particularly picky spectrums i've got one of those audi retro style boom boxes and that's fine so long mm. as the tape isn't stiff um, but that mm -hmm. can that can cause me problems as well. I've got an original data set, but of course it's old. I have replaced the bands, but it still doesn't seem to help and is prone to chewing tapes. The best machine I've got in the house is a little bookshelf um, hi-fi stack. CD player doesn't work on it, but the tape is a Sony. Picked it up for 10 bucks from an op shop, and the tape deck is just amazing. And I know, uh, you know, very simply, if it's the Electron, half volume, if it's the Spectrum, 
full volume and games load first time every time. So it's my go-to. If I'm having an issue with a game, that's the go-to. Yeah, it's all down to the mechanism. On to this week's question of the week. So go to our subreddit, uh, www.reddit.com slash r slash this week in retro. Link in the show notes where you can submit your answer to Chris's question. And Chris's question is, what should be this week's question of the week? Because we haven't come up with one. Um, what were we going to do? Did we? we did. Oh, you worded yeah, one we and wanted me to put it into English. <laughs> what yes. What was it about? That's why I'm dropping you in it. Ah, oh, that's right. I remember. We're going to keep all this in, aren't we? Yeah, Duncan, keep all this in. Um, so basically, <laughs> I've got to reword what Dave said now. Um, okay, so so basically, you know, the, one of the stories this week was about people using the Sony PlayStation predominantly as a CD player rather than a gaming console. So we're interested to know, are you using any of your retro kit predominantly to do something potentially it, that isn't its primary function, whether it's maybe... You spend most of your time with your Amiga just listening to music on that in beautiful separated stereo playing mods back, something like that. Or do you use your PlayStation 2 primarily as your DVD player, your PlayStation 4 even? I know that's not retro. Is that your Blu-ray player more than it is your gaming console? So what do you, what do you use your kit for that isn't its primary function? And if you want to play this on hard mode, do not mention the ZX81 as a doorstop. thank you very much for coming on tony um i would recommend people have a listen to your podcast if you like it um it's also nice to have an australian perspective on things as well uh we try here and we've got what someone that's almost australian um thank you for listening this week next week we'll be back um it's time to go bye-bye see you later bye Chris is waving. Tony's not. Tony's waving. Yeah. No, he's not. Wave. Yes. Bye-bye. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RNC The Cave, Chris from 005 Agema, and Dave. It was produced by me, Duncan Stiles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favourite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro to suggest and vote on the stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you enjoy our show and would like to support it, then please check out the link to our Patreon page in the show notes or description. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.